The Them Project is an ongoing podcast interview and photo series giving gender nonconforming individuals a platform to be seen and heard while educating all who listen about gender diversity. Hi, my name is Brent Dundor. I'm a commercial photographer in Minneapolis. I identify as cisgendered and I use he, him, his pronouns. I began this project to challenge my own ignorance on gender, and today I am an activist producing this project with hope that all who listen will share the interviews celebrating the participants and helping to inform others. Hello everyone, I'm here today with another very special guest. Today's interview will be unique because we happen to be at the University of Minnesota, uh, the Student Center Theater, and we're right here on stage. I will ask my regular questions about gender and gender nonconformity. And then we all get to hear a segment from Zochi de la Luna, who is one of They Them Project's participants. Zochi will ask more uh, in-depth questions so we can hopefully get the more personal side to our guest today. So, so who is this guest, this special guest that we have today? I have the great pleasure to introduce to you all Alok Vaid Menon, who is a gender nonconforming performance artist, writer, and educator. Their eclectic style and poetic challenge to the gender binary have been internationally renowned. Alok was recently the youngest participant of the prestigious Live Works Performance Act Award, granted to 10 performance artists across the world. In 2017, they released their inaugural poetry chapbook, Femme in Public. They have been featured on HBO, MTV, The Guardian, National Geographic, The New York Times, and The New Yorker, and have presented their work at 350 venues in more than 40 countries. Alok, thank you so much for being here and giving us your time while you're traveling through Minnesota. Thanks for having me. I know you're very busy because I've actually contacted you a couple times when I was going through New York and you were traveling in other places, so I'm excited that we finally uh, yeah, connect here. Um, I like to start every inter- interview by officially introducing myself um, to the person that I'm interviewing so everyone listening to the podcast can see how easy it is to introduce yourself, specifically when you're in a situation where you want to respect someone's pronouns, and how then that invites that person who you're meeting to give their pronouns as well. My name is Brent Dundor. I'm the creator, producer, and photographer of They Them Project. Uh, For the purpose of this interview, I like to tell everyone that I identify as a husband, an artist, an activist, gay, bisexual, queer. Uh, I am cisgendered, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hey, everyone. My name is Alok, as in tell me a joke, Alok. Uh, I identify as gender nonconforming, and I use they, them pronouns. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of the Twin Cities? Wow, my first impression is that it's extremely cold, and all of my solidarity to all the brown people shivering right now. <laughs> Have you been here when it's actually cold? <laughs> uh, so I just want to say, cold is subjective. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> anything that requires me to have to cover my outfit with a coat is already too cold and too transphobic. Okay. <laughs> um, so I don't know how much you do know about the project, but I started They Them Project to challenge my own ignorance and lack of acceptance uh, towards people who are non-binary and use gender nonconforming pronouns. The project has grown for me starting to document my journey to better understand gender. And today the goal, and it's my privilege to be able to work with leaders from the trans plus community uh, like yourself giving the space for all to be seen and heard and to allow everyone who listens a chance to educate themselves about gender um, by listening to the interviews, hearing people's personal stories, 
and uh, understanding their journeys. Is there um, any special reason you decided to do this? Is there, do you have any goals with it? I think that especially in this political moment, there are so many efforts to undermine the decades of activism of gender non-conforming people and the assertion of both our humanity and our dignity. So it feels more important than ever for me to use every opportunity I can get to raise more visibility about gender non-conforming people. Okay, Alok, I always start my interviews with the exact same question, and I think it's an important one for people who are trying to educate themselves about gender uh, to hear the answer to this question. Would there ever be a time that you would be upset if someone asked you what pronouns you use? No. What do you feel when someone asks you what pronouns you use? I guess it would just feel like anyone asking me about my name. It doesn't really have like a positive or negative association. It just seems kind of standard and expected at this point. I've worked on taking the word responsibility out of this next question, but at the same time, I've grown to appreciate people's answers to the question that I've always asked. Mm -hmm. So um, when meeting someone for the first time, do you feel that there is or should be responsibility for trans or non-binary people to tell their pronouns or that everyone should be expected to give their pronouns when they meet someone? I think it's about everyone, actually. Um... I feel like also in some situations, a lot of trans and gender non-conforming people can't disclose our pronouns because that could be a form of outing and there could be violence or discrimination. So that's why I think it's important that we begin to all normalize it regardless of our gender identity so that people don't feel like made into a spectacle or awkward if they're the only person doing it. How long have you been using they, them pronouns? Wow, um, I would say maybe since like 2011. So about seven or eight years. Do you currently or have you previously ever thought about using other pronouns, possibly uh, other gender non-conforming pronouns? No, they seems pretty good for me right now. Can you tell us a short or a long version about your journey to using they, them pronouns, uh, maybe when you first started questioning gender and how it has led to uh, how you identify today? I think that there's this thing that happens where people say that gender non-conforming people are synonymous with they them pronouns but truth be told i feel like i had to start using them to challenge other people's assumptions that i was a man so it was not necessarily something organic it was more like okay they keep on calling me he 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 and making these sets of assumptions about my body my life my history how do i interrupt that exchange and that's where i began to discover they them pronouns i think it was from the internet probably that's where i discover a lot of things and i was like oh this is a really great way to to actually dislodge those set of assumptions that are being made about me so i guess what i am trying to say is that i feel like they them has been a kind of um strategy to challenge people's binary gender assumptions but it's not synonymous with who i am because I think we do this thing where we make all people who use they, them the same. Where we make all gender non-conforming or non-binary people the same. But I believe that there are as many genders as there are people in the world. And I feel like actually in, in my heart of hearts, um, I exist outside of gender. And I feel like they, them still, at, at maybe in the ways that it's been sort of assimilated or co-opted now, has made it synonymous with a particular kind of gender versus me. So I think in my heart of hearts, what I really dream of is that once we start to use gender neutral language more generally in society, 
then they them won't be associated with just non-binary and gender non-conforming people, if that makes sense. Okay. It could fit outside of all of that. Yeah. I and think what fine. people are trying to confine into that space. Right. I think that because like what I'm trying to say is I want to challenge the gendering of society more generally. And I feel like actually some of the ways that pronoun circulation has worked is actually stabilizing a gendered society. So what we do is we say, okay, the majority of people are men and women and just these small minority people use they them. And that's not actually what's happening. I think when you speak to a lot of non-binary and gender non-conforming people, we're not just saying I'm neither a man or woman. We're saying society should stop gendering. Mm -hmm. And that's a different political project. Mm -hmm. um, the first project is one of just recognition. And the second project is one of challenging. Um, there's a politics to it. So for me, when I use they, them, there's also a sort of politics to saying, why does it matter what my gender is? to begin with. <laughs> like, why do we affix gender to so many arbitrary things? Um, why is gender so deeply linked to personhood? Why is gender so deeply linked to possession? Why do you need to say his water bottle? What about that relationship is gendered? So I'm trying to also, I think, make people interrogate how our societies become so saturated with gender and recognize that they too suffer from that, not just non-binary and gender non-conforming people. How does race and culture play into gender identity and acceptance and someone's gender? How has it maybe played a role in your own life? I mean, I can't disassociate my race from my gender. Um, so much of the ways that I began to express myself was within a tight-knit Indian community that I grew up in Texas, where my gender actually wasn't a problem. There was a frame of reference for me. And there wasn't actually the need to identify me with pronouns or with language. I was accepted in a more intangible way. I think so much of the project of Western colonization has been an insistent desire to categorize everything and a refusal to actually have different circulations of knowing that are outside of words. Uh, in the West, we're taught that we have to label everything to know things. But I think that I grew up with a deep appreciation that there are some things that we cannot know, but that we feel. And that's really beautiful and powerful. So I felt like growing up that the Indian community I was a part of didn't need for me to come out or to disclose who I was. Um, they already found ways of accepting me outside of that. But then I think the issue became once I started to go to school, I went to a public school in small town in Texas. And so most of my classmates were white Christian evangelicals, really. And uh, then my gender became a problem. And my gender problem was deeply linked to also me being a brown person. They were both seen as sort of ways in which I was different from the sort of heteronormative white community there. And people began to start asking me for the first time, what are you? That was not a question I had had growing mm -hmm. up. Um, and then I had to have an answer because I was like, uh, I've never even thought about this. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel like so much of the even discourse around coming out presumes that we're erased. And I feel like that project of erasure is a distinctly white and Western project. As an Indian person, uh, I'm not trying to say that I didn't experience homophobia and transphobia, but I think a lot of my community knew what I was. They may not have liked it, but they knew what it was. And to this day, when I go to India, a lot of, I spend about a month in India every year. And a lot of people are like, are you safe there? Like, how do you manage? And I actually say I feel a lot more recognized in India than I do in the U.S. People may not like what I'm giving, but they know what I am. Whereas in the West, they're like, what is that? I've never seen anything like it. 
Is there any other place in the world where you have felt more accepted? Yeah, lots of places. I would generally say that places that are predominantly black or people of color and indigenous, they feel a lot safer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we forget that actually so much of the gendering of society and specifically the binary gendering of society is like a white Western construction that many indigenous peoples historically and to this day had a deeply different system of gender and sex where gender non-conforming people were not actually stigmatized, but were actually upheld. And so I think that what I always say, I think so much of the work that I do is global because I think the U.S. is actually deeply behind when it comes to trans and gender non-conforming issues. And India, Nepal, Pakistan, it's totally legal to be recognized as a third gender in all of your identity documents. That's not seen as controversial. Whereas here, it would literally, like we have an entire administration that's trying to restrict our ability to do anything of the sort. So I think that it's really important that when we're having conversations about gender to always maintain a global perspective, to think of the U.S. not as on the front lines, but actually catching up. Mm-hmm. You said that your greatest accomplishment is to exist. What does that mean? I mean, I think at every single level, people are trying to destroy and invisibilize and erase gender nonconforming people. Um, and a, on a tangible sense, that looks like Every single day I go outside in New York City where I currently live, I'm harassed. Um, I experience relentless physical, sexual, verbal violence simply just by existing in public. Um, And all of those acts of harassment are attempts to destroy me and to invisibilize me. And they're not just attacks on me, they're attacks on gender nonconformity more generally. That's how the gender binary works. It maintains that there are only two genders, specifically by invisibilizing, hurting, and trying to efface all of us who defy the gender binary. But then I think also in a more sort of metaphysical sense, so much of the ways that we tell history, so much of the ways that we tell culture, so much of the ways that we speak about even the contemporary present is we erase gender nonconforming people. So we forget that actually at the Stonewall Rebellion, it was gender nonconforming black and brown people who were fighting for everyone that just becomes a sort of generalizable narrative of gay or LGBT. We forget that in many anti-colonial struggles, there were gender non-conforming people on the front lines of these political movements. And then today, when we look at the trans movement, we often only uplift people who identify within the binary and people who are taking hormones or pursuing medical transition. And those of us who have different relationships with our genders are dismissed and delegitimized even within the trans community. So I think that I notice at every single level that if I don't speak about my pain, people don't think it's happening. And then even when I do speak about my pain, they think that I'm making it up. So at every level, what happens in this society is that in order to be real, you have to be binary. And that if you're not binary, you're just seen as making it up or imaginary. And I think so much of what I'm trying to do with my work, with my art, and all of my existence is to actually say I don't have to be binary in order to be beautiful. I don't have to be binary in order to be safe. I don't have to be binary in order to be real. And it's actually those of us who are visibly gender nonconforming experiencing the brunt of racist and patriarchal violence. We're just often invisibilized. So you talk about uh, what you have to go through every day. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say you don't necessarily appreciate when people call you brave Mm -hmm. or inspirational. Um, some would hear everything you just said and say, well, you have to be brave to do all of that. Um, but in another interview, it you, you said that it means a lot when someone does compliment your outfit or tell you that you look great, beautiful. Uh, 
So what should people take from those two things? Sure. I think it means a different thing when it comes from a trans person or a gender nonconforming person than a cis person. How trans and gender nonconforming people call me brave or inspirational, I understand what that means because they understand what I'm going through because they've lived it. Whereas I think for a lot of cis and gender conforming people when they call me brave, the reason that makes me irritated is it stabilizes their complicity. I shouldn't have to be brave to do something as simple as walking outside. Like, there are a lot of things that I do that I think are brave, like clashing 14 prints, not, like, existing. Um, and it actually requires oppressed people to be strong versus putting the onus on the people oppressing us to not attack us. And I think at every single level, when we come to trans politics today, the emphasis is on empowering trans people and not disempowering a society that invisibilizes us. And I'm trying to move the onus to actually be like, I don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. I'm literally just walking down the street and that becomes politicized. Um, why don't you shift society's conceptions of gender so that I don't have to be strong or brave? And then I think when it comes to complimenting my outfits, that's less about my gender as it is about my artistry. Um, for me, I use fashion as a tool, just like I use poetry. You're allowed to compliment my poetry, like it's not me. Um, I think that what gets frustrating is when people think that my gender is something I'm doing, not something I am. And that sort of language of like, brave, you're taking steps, like, I'm like, do we call like cis people brave just for like breathing? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. no, that, that's still rooted in a kind of transphobia. And I think the, the more subtle implications of that are that's how we actually minoritize trans and gender nonconforming people. What we say when we're saying you're brave, what we're saying is, wow, I would never go through that. Mm -hmm. And that's painful because then I'm like, okay, I actually think, and I believe this in my heart of hearts, that a lot more people in this world are gender nonconforming. Mm -hmm. It's just that people are terrified of the real implications of physical, sexual, and economic violence from expressing a gender nonconforming presence. And so they don't. And so I think what we do when we continue to talk about this as like brave or exceptional, we continually minoritize what I think actually is something we're all experiencing. My belief is that we all, to various degrees, have gender nonconformity in us. I've never met a Barbie or a Ken in my life. We keep on per performing or pretending that there's these pure binary gender. I, I, don't, I don't know what those are. We all defy these social categories because we're not categories. We're complex people. And I want gender nonconformity to be something that can be beneficial and a gift to all people regardless of their gender identity. You've described uh, the feeling of hatred towards non-binary people as a failure not only to be cis, but also a failure to be trans. Yeah. And I think, again, for people who are listening to this to understand gender, that that's something that they should grasp. So I'd like if you could explain. Yes, the most painful harassment I go through is from other trans people. I oftentimes have binary trans people tell me that I am a bad representative of the community, that I'm just a man in a dress, that I make the community um, look like we're not taken seriously, that I'm the reason why trans people experience violence because people associate them with me, that I'm not even trying hard. And that hurts me so much because how am I not trying hard when I experience every single, I experience violence every single day of my life? How am I not trying hard when I literally have chosen to, um, to not prioritize my safety and to prioritize my authenticity at every single time that I can? And I think it's, people don't often get that because they often just say trans without understanding the hierarchies even within the trans community. And there are very clear hierarchies around race, class, and gender nonconformity that often, and an ability that often get erased when we just say trans. 
And so I think what's really crucial to understanding is that when people are harassing me, what they're also saying is you're ugly. And we forget that in this society, there used to be laws in the books called ugly laws that would prevent visibly disabled people from existing in public because the society thought that they were so unsightly and so disgusting that they had to be separated. And I think a lot of the harassment that gender nonconforming people experience is from that legacy. And that's why I actually feel like so much of the ways that I think about gender and beauty is informed by the disability justice movement which teaches us that like actually our physical appearance should have no bearing on our safety. And it's really messed up that we've coupled people's worth with what they look like. Like that's like so bad. Um, and so I think a lot of the harassment I'm experiencing is because people will say things like you're visibly unsightly or you're disgusting. And that's of course informed by gender norms, but it's also a part of bigger project where the society requires us to be binary, to be considered beautiful. And I think that that's where the failure of trans comes in, as I have people tell me, like, if you're going to be trans, at least take hormones so you, you can look more fish, or you can break down some of that, uh, your shoulders, or hey, could you at least shave? And what they're actually doing is saying, you are unsightly to me. And that's really not okay. And I wish that we could really call that out more. And I wish that we could be honest that that's happening, which is that circuits of desirability and circuits of beauty are being used to justify people's worth in a society. And I think that needs to end. Can I ask you questions about your name? Sure. Have you always gone by Alok? Yes. Have you ever considered using a different name? Yes. Why is that? <laughs> in sixth grade, um, I started an inner name society where I just had everyone in my <laughs> school like choose the name that they wanted to be called. And because I was like going through it at the time, like had a lot of internalized racism, I literally asked people to call me Larry, which is so <laughs> funny. So there are people from this era in my life who referred to me as Larry, which is like hilarious. Um, and I'm kind of nostalgic for that. And like, especially about what that says about my journey. So like sometimes people call me Larry in my life and I think that's funny. Um, <laughs> I, I think that like what it's been a real struggle because people constantly invalidate the transitions of non-binary people because often our narratives aren't like A to B. And so things like name changes or gender identity document changes or medical transitions become explicit or visible ways that we can say I'm something new. And so oftentimes people just see me as the same, even though I feel like I've transitioned or transcended, as I like to say. So once again, I, I think I keep on trying to gesture towards there's so much external pressure to non-binary people to have to, quote, prove what we are. And so I always am trying to struggle through, like, is the desire to change my name organic? Or is that because people don't see me as real? And that might shift over time. But right now, I believe in actually being able to fight to, to say, I shouldn't have to change my name. Like, I've changed and that's enough. Mm -hmm. uh, before I started this project, I had no idea how important names were to trans and non-binary people. Mm -hmm. um, but I also respect and admire your idea of not having to change a name. Right. Um, I believe I've heard you say you gain power through how you dress. And I think you've actually said that while we've been on mic mm -hmm. here. Uh, maybe never, but I'm curious how often you don't want to deal with your expression of your identity or of yourself uh, by through your clothes. How often does that happen? Um, I think it happens a lot in the winter. <laughs> like there are a lot of issues facing the trans community, but I honestly have to say cold weather is among the top for me because 
it's just so transphobic to have to cover up my outfits. Like, I can't. And people do not make cute winter gear. I'm trying to change that. Um, stay tuned. Yeah. But, uh, so I think, like, sometimes it's just so cold outside. I'm like, I'm just not going to do this. And that means I know people are going to call me he, and that's painful. Or I know that people are going to misrecognize me, and that hurts. But I just have to take it because I'm like, it is too cold outside for me to wear a five-inch practical heel. Then I think also I have to really check in with myself to ask, like, how I'm feeling around harassment. Uh, every day when I get ready, I have to, I mean, living in a place like New York, I think it's really important to say it's different than anywhere else I've ever lived because you're just in public all the time. You don't have the luxury of like going into a car and having private space. So you enter like a train and you're in that train with like 50 other people and the doors are locked. That's terrifying when you're gender nonconforming. Just a few weeks ago, a train I was in got like stuck underground and we were there for an hour and 45 minutes and or actually 45 minutes only, sorry. And I almost had a full on panic attack because situations where I'm confined and I can't get away are terrifying for me because mm -hmm. I've had to really learn how to be able to ascertain is someone looking at me with curiosity or is someone looking at me like they're going to bash me. Um, and so often like after an event like that where I'm really traumatized by something or something particularly negative happens to me during harassment, I take time off. I say, I can't, I can't do this. And I think that that is a narrative I also want to hear out in the world. It's like it, your physical appearance and how you dress is not the same thing as your gender identity. So I'm still trans. I'm still non-binary, mm -hmm. even if I'm not dressed like I am right now. And that all of us are actually navigating worlds of incredible violence. And I don't think it's fair to conflate visibility with authenticity, especially considering those sorts of extreme violence in this country. So even me, I think it's gotten less and less as, as I've come into myself. There are fewer and fewer days where I... I like to call that part of my wardrobe like hetero herb. There are a few, few days where I wear hetero herb, but like she's still there. And <laughs> like, for example, when I'm flying in airplanes, I usually dress in as hetero herb because I've experienced so much harassment from TSA officers flying. Mm -hmm. um, and so many of my friends have so many horror stories about it. So there's some moments where I'm just like, I don't want to actually go in harm's way. Um, and I think that's totally a valid choice. And so that's why for me, the world that I want is that we don't make assumptions about people's genders or pronouns. We ask people because we're all navigating such incredible violence. Alok, what is privilege and what does it mean to be an ally? <laughs> wow, that's a, a, a 45 minute lecture. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll try to take be it away succinct. Um, privilege is, is about the experiences that you've not had to go through or undergo. A lot of times people think about privilege as the things that you have, but it's also the things that you have not had to go through. So I think a lot of like non, a lot of gender conforming people um, have not had to endure the sense of being rendered a spectacle and having everyone stare at you, but no one seeing you, uh, being reduced to a trope uh, or charlatan. And because they've not experienced that, they have privilege over gender non-conforming people. And I think I'm less interested in allyship um, as I am in, like, friendship. Because allyship to me is rooted in me having to be oppressed for you to have an identity. So when you say you're an ally, you're stabilized in this way of, like, I'm always going to be oppressed. Um, and so much of the means of how you're becoming an ally rely on me continually being belittled. Um, I think that for me... 
I've had a lot of people in my life who got the correct politics, like got their correct pronouns, but then when it actually came to the violence I was experiencing, they were gone. And I think that's a situation many of us as trans and gender non-conforming people of color understand very well, is a lot of people will publicly be like, what are your pronouns? But then when we're struggling to find housing, they're absent. Mm-hmm. Or um, what's, your per- what's your name? But then when we're actually like got attacked on the street, they're absent. And so for me, that's why I offer friendship as a different sort of mode of existing and relating, because we should be showing up for people, not just when it's politically convenient or advantageous, and care work is is part of solidarity. And I think one of the biggest issues facing people like me is social isolation. We're often kicked out of our families, kicked out of our communities, and we don't usually have people who really care about us. And we often have to enter in extremely abusive partnerships because we're looking for basic care. Um, and so I really just ask people, like, be kind um, and practice a, what I call compassionate militancy. Like, really respond to all of the vitriol directed against gender nonconforming people with a different ethics of love. What advice do you have for youth who might be questioning their gender identity? My advice is to determine your safety first and foremost. I, like I've mentioned before, I grew up in Texas, and I know that if I dressed like this when I was younger, I would have experienced even more physical harassment than I already did. And so I waited until I could create a life for myself where I felt safer to do it. Um, And I feel like there's a lot of pressure these days to constantly have to be out. Um, And I think that that's misguided because there are no resources when people do come out. There are very few homeless shelters for young trans people. There are very few medical services for young trans people. And there are very few jobs and economic opportunities for young trans people. So negotiate visibility on your own terms, considering a realistic take on what resources you have in your life. And I wish that people had told me that because I had a lot of shame when I was younger about not manifesting who I knew myself to be, but I I felt like I was somehow less than or less legitimate. But now I've learned that was totally okay. What advice do you have for parents who may have children who are questioning their gender identity? Mm, I would say just create a space where people can experiment and figure it out. Like, um, I think one of the things my parents did really well is there wasn't like an explicit naming of what was going on when I started to sort of be general conforming. They're just like, okay. So if one day I was wearing all my sister's clothes versus one day wearing the clothes that they had bought me, it wouldn't be like, what are you doing? They're just like, okay. Mm-hmm. And that, that sense of just like bearing witness and not making it an issue, I think was so helpful for me. Is there anything else you would like to say to everyone listening? No, I think that's it. <laughs>